Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. Hi, I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. Today we tackle a huge episode. Cerebral palsy is a massive topic and it spans all of the practice areas from EI to outpatient to inpatient following a surgery and even the schools. This episode will likely be long and cover a lot of information. There are additional resources that will be vital, including the research document by Novak, the case files book, and the clinical summary available through the APTA. Additionally, Can Child will have all of your gross motor curves that you need to know for this diagnosis as well. The GMFCS levels are also vital, so make sure you are committing those to memory. First, let's talk definition. Cerebral palsy describes a group of permanent disorders of the development of movement and posture, causing activity limitations that are attributed to non-progressive disturbances that occurred in the developing fetal brain or infant. CP is the most common childhood disability and studies show prevalence highest among children born before 28 weeks and children with a birth weight of 1,000 to 1,499 grams. There are multiple causes of CP, many of which are not fully understood and the exact cause is often unknown. But here are some things we do know. Current evidence shows that most lesions occur in the second half of gestation during an active period of brain development and not due to an acute hypoxic event at birth as previously thought. Intrauterine pathology is attributed to environmental triggers such as infection, growth restriction, antepartum hemorrhage, and tight nuchal cord. The pathobiology of CP differs by nature, timing, and location of the brain insult. During the first and second trimesters of gestation, brain pathology is characterized by genetic or acquired impairments. From the late second trimester forwards, disturbances are often a result of infectious or hypoxic ischemic events that result in lesions. Current evidence suggests that multiple risk factors contribute to CP, rather than just a single event. Although birth asphyxia can result in CP, it is not a common antecedent. When it is the cause, hypoxic damage is typically bilateral and widespread, resulting in total body involvement with spastic and dyskinetic features. Additional factors such as inflammation can interact with CP and increase CP risk. 
Cerebral vascular events that occur within the first 28 days after birth are a significant cause of CP. Infections can be transmitted from mom to infant and also result in cerebral palsy. Premature birth increases the risk of CP and the underlying brain pathology is white matter injury to sensory motor pathways. Infants with small birth weight can be associated with infection, preeclampsia, maternal vascular disease, or thrombophilia. These are just some examples, and the book details them all thoroughly. In terms of diagnosis, neuroimaging finds and prenatal risk factors can assist in making a diagnosis of CP. CP remains a clinical diagnosis made when a child does not reach early motor milestones and exhibits abnormal muscle tone or qualitative differences in movement patterns. An important developing area of CP in terms of diagnosis is the general movement assessment. The general movement assessment is a quick, non-invasive, and cost-effective way to identify neurological issues, which may lead to cerebral palsy and other developmental disabilities. The assessment can be conducted from birth to three months of age. General movements are a distinct movement pattern that are evident in babies before birth and after birth. The movement pattern is one which the baby does spontaneously and without any external stimulation, such as a parent playing or talking to them. General movements are helpful in the early diagnosis of an impaired central nervous system and the specific prediction of later neurological conditions. If a baby is assessed as being at risk of having cerebral palsy, then intervention can start early with potentially much better outcomes for the child. Research suggests that pathologic movement qualities characteristic of CP can be reliably identified in the first few months of life with a sensitivity of 95% and a specificity of 96%. Those are huge numbers, which is why there has been such a push, rightfully so, to get practitioners doing this. Make sure you're familiar with the terms related to this test. Prechtel characterized the movement pattern in CP as being one of cramped synchrony with a paucity of selective joint movements, especially in their rotational components. His work has also demonstrated that clinical examination of children with known signs of brain impairment can identify the effects of such lesions on movement. These effects can be described longitudinally and used to predict recovery or non-recovery from early disturbances in the neuromuscular system. Another tool in early identification is the Alberta Infant Motor Scale, or the AIMS, which demonstrates good psychometric properties, especially between corrected ages 4 and 10 months, and has clinical utility in comparing an infant's development with that of other infants the same age. The TIMP and the Neurosensory Motor Developmental Assessment can be used before and after term. Prechtel's Gross Motor Assessment has the best combination of sensitivity and specificity in the early months, like we talked about earlier. But the AIMS and the NSDMA are better predictors when infants are older. No consensus has been reached on how early CP can be identified reliably but it has been postulated that an experienced PT and MD should be able to identify the signs of CP in all but the mildest cases by six months. PTs play a role in recognizing alternative diagnoses such as transient dystonia, 
that presents with similar but resolving neurologic signs of CP. Diagnosis should be confirmed by a pediatric specialist to rule out other causes of similar clinical signs, such as brain tumors or metabolic disorders. It's recommended that all children with CP have a brain MRI in cases of unknown origin. Metabolic workups should be considered in children who appear to have CP but have normal brain imaging because genetic muscle disorders and mitochondrial disease may present similarly to CP. There are four five-level classification systems that have been validated for classifying gross motor function, manual ability, communication function, and eating and drinking ability for children with CP through age 18. Each of these systems is based on the idea that classification of children with CP on functional abilities and limitations should enhance communication among professionals. Classification systems are not outcome measures, and the goal of the intervention should not be to change the child's level. Let's break down these classification scales. First, we will talk about the gross motor function classification system. A GMFCS level classification is made by determining which of the five levels best represents the child's current abilities and limitations in gross motor function in home and community settings. Classification is based on the child's self-initiated movement with emphasis on sitting and walking. The description of each level is broad and not intended to describe all motor aspects. Distinction among levels of gross motor function are based on functional limitations, need for handheld assistive devices, wheeled mobility, and quality of movement. The scale is ordinal with no intent that the distances between levels can be considered equal or that children with CP are equally distributed among levels. Parents can apply the GMFCS reliably to their child's functional status and value being able to understand their child's level of function and what it means for their future needs. Classification of infants younger than two is less precise than classification of older children and it is recommended reclassifying children at age two as more clinical information becomes available. Make sure you have a copy of this classification scale printed out for frequent review. You need to know this information and you need to be very confident in quickly identifying a GMFCS level when provided information on functional skills. The next classification scale is the Manual Ability Classification System, also known as the MAX. The MAX is a five-level system similar to the GMFCS, and it classifies hand use in children with cerebral palsy 4 to 18 years of age. Classification is based on the child's typical performance in handling objects during daily activities. Distinctions among levels are based on the child's ability to handle objects and the amount of assistance or adaptation the child needs to complete the tasks of daily living. Next, the Communication Function Classification System, or the CFCS, is a five-level system to classify usual communication functions of individuals with CP. A classification is based on everyday performance for all methods of communication, including speech, gestures, eye gaze, AAC, etc. Distinctions among levels are based on the performance of sender and receiver roles, 
the pace of communication, and the type of conversational partner. Last is the Eating and Drinking Abilities Classification System. It combines a five-level ordinal scale that describes the eating and drinking ability of people with CP ages three to adulthood and a three-level ordinal scale describing assistance required in bringing food and drink to the mouth. Children with CP can also be classified by topographic distribution of impairments such as diplegia, hemiplegia, hemiparesis, and quadriplegia. Movement differences are related to the location of the brain damage and types include spastic, dyskinetic, ataxic, or mixed. All right, let's talk a little bit more about these. So spastic cerebral palsy results from involvement of the motor cortex or white matter projections to and from cortical sensory motor areas of the brain. Spasticity and exaggerated reflexes result in abnormal movement patterns of posture and movement. Dyskinesia reflects involvement in the basal ganglia with features including atypical patterns of posture and involuntary, uncontrolled, recurring, and occasionally stereotyped movements of affected body parts. Dyskinetic CP can further be classified into dystonic or athetoid. Dystonic movement is dominated by involuntary, sustained, or intermittent muscle contraction with repetitive movements and abnormal postures. Athetosis is characterized by slow, continuous writhing movements that prevent maintenance of a stable posture. A cerebellar lesion produces ataxia, an inability to generate normal or expected voluntary movement trajectories that cannot be attributed to weakness or involuntary muscle activity about effective joints. It results in general instability, abnormal patterns of posture, and lack of orderly, coordinated, rhythmic, and accurate movements. In mixed CP, symptoms of spastic and dyskinetic may be present. At the body functions and structure level, we will see issues with muscle tone and extensibility, limitations in muscle strength, problems with skeletal structure, such as scoliosis or hip instability, poor selective control, poor postural control, pain, and fatigue. All right, so how do we evaluate these issues? Well, for muscle tone and extensibility, we usually see the modified Ashworth scale or the modified Tardu scale. The modified Ashworth is an ordinal measure of spasticity and extensibility, it does not quantify spasticity exclusively as anatomic, and biomechanical factors such as intrinsic stiffness of the muscle can contribute to hypertonia in addition to a heightened velocity-dependent stretch reflex response. The modified Tardu scale measures the point of resistance or catch to a rapid velocity stretch, giving an indication of the dynamic neural component of tone or the overactive stretch reflex and it is also called R1. Moving the limb slowly into a lengthened position indicates the mechanical component of tone or muscle length at rest. This is commonly known as passive range of motion or also known as R2. A large difference between the initial catch, R1, and the point of mechanical resistance, 
R2 indicates a large reflexive com component to motion limitation and a small difference suggests a more fixed muscle contracture. The Tardu scale has been found to be more reliable than the modified Ashworth scale, particularly for plantar flexors. Some other quick tools to remember are the Barry Albright dystonia scale, which is a tool for rating dystonia. It is a five-point ordinal scale based on the severity of posturing and involuntary dystonic movements in eight body regions. The spinal alignment range of motion measure is a discriminative tool that uses estimations of spinal alignment and range of motion limitations to give a summary score. This measure indicates whether the child has normal alignment and range of motion, flexible deviation, or mild, moderate, severe fixed limitations. It is considered to be reliable and valid for children with CP. To measure strength and endurance, we need to think about a lot of factors like age, cognitive level, spasticity, hyperactive reflexes, muscle extensibility, and selective motor control. These are all going to impact our ability to accurately look at strength and endurance. A make test is more reliable than a break test for lower extremity muscles when handheld dynamometry is used. Interrater reliability of 30-second repetitions of lateral step-ups, sit-to-stand, and standing through half-kneel are acceptable ways to measure strength and functionality. For endurance, we have the 10-meter walk, the one-minute walk, six-minute walk, 10-minute walk, 600-yard walk-run test, and the six-minute push test. They've all been found to be reliable in children with CP. Shuttle run, wheeling, cycling, or, or ergometry tests have been validated as maximal exercise tests for children with cerebral palsy. The Selective Control Assessment of Lower Extremity, or the scale, is an objective tool used to quantify lower extremity selective voluntary motor control. It rates the ability to perform specific isolated movement patterns as normal, impaired, or unable, and has been shown to be valid and reliable. Sway or responses to perturbations can be assessed by disturbing the supporting surface or by perturbating the subject. Analysis of EMG activity during perturbations makes it possible to detect abnormal responses in the timing of muscle activity onset and duration, in the sequencing of agonists, and in the co-contraction of antagonists. Pain is always an important measure to consider. Self-report is always the best option and can be assessed verbally, through questionnaires, or through analog scales. Looking at behavioral and physiologic clues can indicate pain. The book offers the non-communicating children's pain checklist as a standardized tool. They also mention the pain assessment instrument for cerebral palsy, which allows self-report of pain and may indicate the range of potentially painful activities more accurately. Outcome measures will be important at the activity and participation level as well. Measures like the TIMP, AIMS, MAI, and the Peabody are standardized measures normed on children with typical development to identify infants and children with delays in motor development or qualify children for therapy. The value of these measures to plan interventions and document change is controversial. 
An alternative approach for measuring change over time or in response to an intervention in children with disabilities is to compare performance with expectations for children with a similar disability. The GMFM 88 is a reliable and valid criterion referenced evaluative measure designed to detect change in children with CP and is valid for five months to 16 years. A gain of five to seven points is considered a medium positive, clinically important change for a child. Remember that. The GMFM 66 is an interval version of the original and demonstrates improved scoring, interpretation, and overall clinical research utility. It requires fewer items to be tested and estimates the difficulty of items. The Gross Motor Ability Estimator, the GMAE, converts scores to an interval scale, plots scores graphically, and provides 95% confidence intervals. The Quality Function Measure is an adaptation of the Gross Motor Performance Measure, a measure developed to rate qualitative aspects of motor skills. It is based on a video recording to assess alignment, coordination, et cetera, in the standing, walking, running, and jumping sections of the GMFM. The Edinburgh Gait Score was developed for people with CP and includes ratings of gait components in all planes of movement. The activity scale for kids is a child or parent report measure for children with musculoskeletal disorders between the ages of 5 to 15 and is robust psychometrically for children with cerebral palsy. We are really getting into the heart of some of these outcome measures you need to know. These are probably hard to listen to on this podcast, which is why we are keeping our descriptions of them pretty short. These really need to be studied in table or flashcard format so you can begin to memorize the age ranges, the uses, et cetera, of each of these measures. The following are some common participation measures. The child engagement in daily life is a parent-completed measure of frequency and enjoyment of participation in family activities. The assessment of life habits determines the daily life experiences of children and is scored on levels of accomplishment, type of assistance, and level of satisfaction. The children's assessment of participation and enjoyment, or the CAPE, is a child report instrument. The Participation and Environment Measure for Children and Youth, or the PEMC, examines participation in home, school, and community and the environmental factors that support or hinder participation specific to these settings. The Lifestyle Assessment Questionnaire for CP measures physical dependence, restriction of mobility, educational exclusion, clinical burden, economic burden, and restriction of social interaction. The SFA may also be used in a school setting. We may also want to look at health-related quality of life measures. These may include things like the Pediatric Quality of Life Inventory, the PEDS-QL, which has a specific CP module and measures health-related quality of life dimensions specific to CP. The Caregiver Priorities and Child Health Index of Life with Disabilities, CP Child, is a measure of health status and well-being in children with severe activity limitations. The CP Quality of Life Questionnaire for Children has self-report and parent proxy versions to assess quality of life. 
Some common individualized outcomes include the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure, which can be used to document and quantify goals that are relevant to a family and determine whether they are achieved. The Goal Attainment Scale is also an individualized outcome, which can be used to evaluate whether specific individualized treatment goals have been met. These forms of assessment are highly responsive to clinically meaningful change in short periods of time and complement, but do not replace standardized measures. An important concept with CP is prognosis. Let's talk a bit about prognosis for gross motor function. So walking ability is obviously going to vary depending on the type of cerebral palsy. Children with hemiplegic and ataxic CP are more likely to walk, whereas those with dyskinetic or bilateral CP are less likely to do so. Cognitive function, visual and hearing impairments, and epilepsy are also predictors of walking ability for all types of cerebral palsy. Here is a huge fact. Independent sitting by 24 months remains the best predictor of ambulation for 15 meters, which is about 50 feet or more with or without assistive devices by the age of eight years old. And if independent sitting is not achieved by three years old, there is very little chance of achieving functional independent walking. Tuck that fact away and remember it always. Another important area of studying in regards to CP is being familiar with the gross motor development curves. These are available on the CAN Child website, and we will link them in the resources for this episode. These motor development curves represent the average pattern of development for children and youth in each of the five GMFCS levels. For all five curves, children progress faster to their maximum GMFM66 scores at younger ages and then demonstrate a leveling of scores in GMFCS levels one and two, or a decline followed by a leveling in GMFCS levels three to five. The GMFM 66 measures activities, specifically what a child can do in a standard condition without shoes or orthotics. Prognosis for goals and outcomes such as wheeled mobility, ambulation potential, and movement efficiency should not be inferred from motor development curves as these are not measured by the GMFM 66. A Swedish study found most children with CP reached a plateau at six to seven years of age. Moving on to interventions, how much, how often, this is all the ultimate question, right? Optimal frequency is really unknown, but periods of more intensive intervention have resulted in attainment of specific treatment goals at levels that were maintained when frequency was decreased, provided that the skills were incorporated into a child's daily routines. We are really trying to move towards a service delivery model of episodes of more intensive frequencies alternated with periods of monitoring and consultation. The most important additional resource you have in terms of interventions is the Novak article. We will link it in our resources, but it is a vital accessory study tool and needs to be read thoroughly. The title of this article is A Systematic Review of Interventions for Children with Cerebral Palsy, State of the Evidence. Eventually, we would love to outline this article in detail, but that is for a future season. 
There is a 2013 version and a 2019 version titled State of the Evidence Traffic Lights 2019, Systematic Review of Interventions for Preventing and Treating Children with Cerebral Palsy. Both of these have vital information. I'm not sure if the 2019 article is too soon for the 2022 testing cycle. There was not a huge amount of difference, and the 2019 article gives a great overview regardless. Both of these documents were really vital in our studying, and they should be high on your list to review. Both of these are cited in our resources. Let's review physical therapy goals, outcomes, and interventions in infancy. A primary goal is to educate families about CP so they have necessary information to make decisions related to physical therapy management of their child. Early intervention within the first two years is advocated to take advantage of the time when the brain is most plastic due to active sprouting and pruning in response to activity. Remember those motor curves. We know they will plateau at some point, so maximizing the time before that inevitable plateau is important. Therapy should focus on the development of well-aligned postural stability coupled with smooth mobility to allow the emergence of motor skills. Parents should be coached on techniques to promote comfort and symmetry, limit dysfunctional posturing and movement, facilitate postural stability, and limit secondary impairments. The principles of the CNS plasticity suggest that intensive, repetitive, task-specific intervention should be incorporated into practice. Even at a young age, focus on self-exploration, active trial and error, variability of practice, test limits, and high frequency of practice are desirable components of treatment. Infants who function at GMFCS levels five and four should be provided with postural management programs for sleeping, sitting, and standing with postural support for sitting at six months of age and standing at 12 months of age. The care of an infant exhibiting asymmetry, extensor posturing, and shoulder retraction should be carried, seated, and fed in a symmetrical position that does not allow for axial hyperextension and keeps the hips and knees flexed. The therapist should ensure that no one position dominates daily activity. Physical goals, outcomes, and intervention in the preschool years should focus on promotion of control and alignment of postures and movements conducive to musculoskeletal development, fitness, gross motor milestones, and participation. During the preschool years, a child's potential for attaining motor skills can be predicted with greater degree of accuracy than during infancy as the influences of impairments, activity limitations, and environmental factors become more obvious. During these years, the focus of PT is often on a child's ability to achieve independent mobility. Specific mobility goals will be based on the GMFCS level. Goals for children at GMFCS levels four and five may be achieved using special equipment rather than progressing through the, the normal developmental sequence. During the preschool years, it's important to manage primary impairments and prevent secondary impairments. Spasticity management may be introduced using a variety of methods. Be familiar with the different ways we can manage spasticity, such as Botox, phenol in injections, oral baclofen, selective dorsal rhizotomy, 
Ideally, range of motion is maintained through activities that involve active movements through full range of motion, sustained low load passive stretching through casting, orthotics, or positioning of a longer duration has been shown to be more effective in increasing range of motion and reducing spasticity. A position just short of the initial catch has been suggested as a guideline which can be altered as muscle lengthening occurs. A program of hip surveillance based on GMFCS levels and radiologic assessment of hip migration percentage coupled with full clinical assessment is recommended. Clinical radiographs at 12 to 24 months of age or at diagnosis if older and ongoing follow-up based on the GMFCS level and clinical signs are recommended. There is a hip surveillance guide that I'm citing in our resource list on the episode guide. Make sure you're familiar with this. There is a lot of information on orthotic recommendations. If you took the advanced practice course, there was a module on orthotics and it really made orthotic recommendations clear as mud. Ultimately, I'm just not sure we really know what the best recommendations for orthotics are, and I think it's really case dependent. That being said, I think reviewing this section in Campbell can give you a quick breakdown and conceptuality to orthotic recommendations. Maintenance of lower extremity weight bearing may allow continued ability to participate in standing transfers and reduce the need for lifting when children are older. Optimal standing should include movement and activity to provide intermittent loading and muscle strain. Standards can be started as early as 9 to 10 months of age for children who are not able to bear weight effectively on their own. Dosing recommendations include 45 to 60 minutes a day to maintain or increase range of motion, 60 to 90 minutes a day to affect bone mineral density, 60 minutes a day in 30 to 60 degrees of hip abduction to influence hip stability, and 30 to 45 minutes for short-term decreases in spasticity. I definitely had these numbers on my master study guide, and I think Sarah did as well. In the preschool years, PT should focus on activity-oriented treatment and recognize when it is realistic to address a child's impairments to achieve success or adapt a task to the environment. Children with CP can be constrained in their ability to learn movement strategies due to muscle tone, strength, sensory processing, perceptual motor skills, and cognition. Motor memory is frequently impaired. Motor learning principles advocate the encouragement of movement exploration and child-initiated solutions to motor tasks, adaptation to changes in the environment, and repetitive practicing of goal-related functional tasks that are meaningful to the child. Embedding activities into daily routines support the principles of motor learning. The GMFCS and gross motor development curves provide evidence-based information to assist in identifying realistic mobility goals. Power mobility may promote the overall development of self-initiated behaviors and the acquisition of spatial concepts. Children can begin augmented mobility as early as eight months of age and learn how to maneuver a power mobility device before 14 months. Those able to use a joystick or other steering device can demonstrate control as young as 18 to 24 months. In the school age and adolescent period, identification of risk for secondary impairment is an important role of the PT. The mean velocity of a typical seven-year-old child leading a line of students in a hallway is four feet per second, 
which can provide guidelines for walking abilities necessary for participation in school mobility. As stated before, most children with CP achieve their gross motor ceiling capacity around five to six years old. Review NOVAC for intervention recommendations and focus on green and yellow recommendations as they have the most evidence. MedBridge has great content for the NOVAC article and the modules really break it down nicely. Between MedBridge and the NOVAC article, we felt very confident in our knowledge of CP recommendations. Potential challenges include contractures, pain, increasing size, puberty, and fatigue. In the case of children with severe involvement, goals may be oriented towards minimizing impairments and facilitating caregiving and comfort, maintenance of muscle extensibility, strength, joint integrity, and fitness is important in preventing secondary impairments. There is increasing evidence in the benefit of progressive resistance training, and this has become a common intervention for children with CP. Additionally, it has been shown that the effort associated with training is not associated with an exacerbation in pain or spasticity. Protocol suggestions for school-aged children and adolescents with CP include single joint training when muscles are very weak or compensations are evident in multi-joint muscles, rest intervals greater than one minute and up to three minutes, intervention of sufficient length for 12 weeks, three times a week for 40 to 50 minute sessions. Of note, with strengthening, changes in prepubescent youth are due to neural factors such as improvements in motor skills, increases in motor unit recruitment rate and firing rate, and changes in coordination more than it is with true muscle hypertrophy. A common surgical intervention to be familiar with is the single event multi-level orthopedic surgery, also known as the SEMLs. It has been shown to improve range of motion, torsion, kinematic gait parameters, and energy efficiency, but only small changes in overall gross motor function are seen. Orthopedic priorities for children at level five are the ability to sit comfortably with a straight spine over a level pelvis with flexible and located hips and a plantigrade braceable foot. The ability to participate in standing transfers is a goal for those functioning at a level four. Evidence does not indicate that bracing prevents the progression of scoliosis in children with cerebral palsy. However, it may provide benefit by stabilizing trunk posture. It has been considered that neuroplasticity can continue into adolescent years or even across the lifespan, but needs to be taken advantage of using optimal types and intensities of treatment. Regardless of the lack of potential of large gains in gross motor skills, Therapy programs are necessary to prevent unnecessary deterioration and maintain optimal levels of functioning. Youth who are functioning at GMFCS levels two to four often choose to use powered or manual wheeled mobility for safety and practicality, even if they can walk. Walking may become an activity for exercise rather than focusing on function. Small studies have shown that body weight supported treadmill training has demonstrated clinically relevant improvements in walking skills, gait velocity, endurance, and standing transfers in children who do not walk by themselves. All right, guys, this is a long episode and we greatly condense this chapter. It is long and wordy. 
I would highly recommend reading it thoroughly along with the Novak articles, the growth motor curves, and the GMFCS. When you combine all of these resources, you will narrow down the most important interventions available and have a good understanding of cerebral palsy recommendations. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next week. And remember, you totally got this.